Hi, this is Steve Thomas, pastor of the First Baptist Church at Delray Beach. Welcome to our podcast. We study God's Word to apply it to our lives in order to make a difference in this life and in eternity. We hope you enjoy this message. We cry out, we cry out. Well, it's good to be back. Julie and I were away in Colorado Springs last Sunday with our amazing daughter and uh, granddaughter and that guy that she lives with who's also amazing. My son-in-law, Greg Davis, was our associate pastor here for two and a half years. They are grateful for you. They send their greetings. And you would be so pleased to see what chaplains do in the U.S. Army. And you would be really encouraged if you could watch them with soldiers and watch them working and sharing Christ and just loving on people on that post. Um, And so I'm grateful for what you, many of you, invested in their lives when they were here and how you continue to pray for them, and uh, they are an amazing couple. And, they, and what was super encouraging for Julie and I is there were other amazing couples that God has raised up around them. Uh, many of them uh, educated at Southern Baptist seminaries and are serving Christ right there in the midst of all of these soldiers. And uh, that was such an encouragement for us. We loved being there, and of course we loved being with our granddaughter. So we're very grateful for our children And uh, I think our son and daughter-in-law are going to be here in a couple of weeks, and our other son a few weeks after that. So I know how it is, you guys that have grown kids. Sometimes you're like, man, we launched them, and they went a long way away. And uh, you're grateful for that, but you really love to have that time when you get to be together. So it's great to be with you. Grateful for Jimmy Land, who delivered the word last week. I hope you enjoyed Jimmy last week. Give him a round of applause. Um, I love Jimmy's heart grateful for what, how God has raised up just a regular guy. I hope that's encouraging. Maybe God is raising you up in the same way. Jimmy's a regular guy that let God get hold of his heart and do something amazing. He's continuing to do something amazing, and Jimmy and Aaron, grateful uh, for them. Well, we're in Acts chapter 19, and we continue this idea of investing your life, and today we're going to talk about responding to chaos. Anybody have any chaos in their life today? We could have a testimonial right now, I think, and everyone could stand up and go, man, everything was okay until this happened, and now it's just been chaos ever since. Or I I just got out of one chaotic moment, and and now I'm in another chaos. And there's just chaos everywhere. And if you're in the financial markets, you know that the banking industry is like full of chaos right now, right? Everyone's wondering. There's a run on SVB Bank, and and they had regulators had to come and take it over, and now it's rippling through other banks. And what's going to happen? And there's chaos everywhere. How do I respond? chaos. And in our lives, our spiritual lives, you may feel like it can be chaotic as well. As the world says this about that and accuses followers of Jesus of this and misrepresents followers of Jesus in this way, and you can maybe feel like there's a sense of chaos. And how in the world do we respond to that? Well, that's what's happening in Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 21. Acts chapter 19 beginning in verse 21, and if you have your Bible, you have a device, you can open it to Acts 21, you can see the scriptures on the screen. Uh, I like to have a Bible, I like to have it open, and I like to have a sense of what God is saying through His Word. This, many of you may not know what this is, this is an actual paper Bible, and these were popular for many years. Um, 
since the beginning of the printing press right in the 1500s, uh, we now have something called devices. And anyway, so Acts chapter 19. Amazing things are happening as Paul is traveling and he's starting churches. And he's been in Ephesus. Probably this is the longest he's been anywhere, probably two years plus. And last week, Jimmy talked about this crazy event that these guys, these, these exorcists showed up and they said, hey, in the name of the, the Jesus that Paul talks about, we ask you to leave. We command you. And the demons jumped on him, stripped him naked, chased him out and scared him to death because they were trying to use someone else's relationship with Jesus to fight evil. And, and as a result, all the believers, and there were many because Paul had been teaching there a long time, they, they started realizing, wait a minute, we're, we're playing with this evil while we're following Jesus. We're kind of going down two tracks. It's kind of a syncretistic way that we're doing this. And this is probably not, we need to get rid of this evil. And let me just tell you, you can't, don't dabble in evil. Some people say, well, you know, I got Jesus and he's the most powerful, so I can kind of I can kind of play in this evil world over here. Don't do that. You give Satan a foothold, you're going to suffer. And so what happens is these guys show up and they burn all these magic books, which is in the range of tens of thousands, perhaps up to a million dollars worth of books are burned because of the Holy Spirit's conviction in their lives. And so there's this incredible move of God that's just happened and then we get to the next event, and it feels like something else is about to push back. And so what Paul does is he empowers others, and he prepares for a backlash. Acts chapter 19, verse 21. God's Word says this, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also... See Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, if you just read that and you don't know the geography, it's really confusing. And if you do know the geography, it's even more confusing. So let's just break it down. Here's Paul. He's in Ephesus. And Ephesus is in what is western Turkey, the very edge of the Asian continent. Across the Aegean Sea is Greece, Achaia, Macedonia. So Paul is saying, listen, I've resolved in the Spirit that we need to go and encourage those churches that I've started over there in Macedonia and down into Achaia. Those are the churches of Philippi, the Philippians. The church of Corinth is down in Achaia. And so Paul says, we need to go encourage them, and then we need to go back to Jerusalem. So he's going to go west, and then they're going to go back east to Jerusalem, and then they're going to go all the way back west to Rome, which is west of Macedonia. But he sends Timothy and Erastus instead of going himself. And I, I love that. Paul says, they need to be encouraged. I need to send guys that I'm raising up. I need to see them go and do that. And that's what, incidentally, this church is all about. We want to raise up leaders who can even replace us to see God do amazing things. Because if it's all about us, that's all going to die before long. Even though I'm probably going to live well into my hundreds. Thank you. Whoever said that gets, gets a tithe holiday. Um, not really. Um, so he sends, his, he sends his buddies over. He sends them over there to uh, Macedonia and Achaia. And Paul stays in Ephesians and uh, in Ephesus. And it almost feels like Paul is anticipating something. 
Okay, things are going great. God just moved. People have thrown away their magic books. They burned them. This is great. Things are going wonderful. So uh, I think I better stay around and see what's about to happen. Parents, do you know what it feels like when it gets too quiet upstairs? You've just gone up and laid down the law? Or you've just dealt with something? Or you've just done something? You're just waiting for something to happen. And I feel like that's what Paul is doing. He says, I know God just moved. I'm just waiting for the pushback. I just want to see what happens next. So Paul stays in Ephesus. And I feel like the Spirit is just keeping him there. He will later join his friends, and he'll later go to Jerusalem, go to Rome. He's wanting to see what's going to happen. And sure enough, something happens. Verse 23. About that time there arose, and, and Luke is very understated when he says it, about that time there arose no little disturbance. That's an understated way of saying things got out of control, right? There was no little disturbance concerning the way. And the way is the name for the church of that time. And I love that name, incidentally. We may change our name to the Delray Way. What do you think? That's, that's kind of a mindful, of a mouthful. Of it. But, you know, there's the way. It means it's, it's we're following Jesus. This is the way you go. This is the way to, the way to, to follow Jesus. Verse 24. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought, again, understated, no little business, big business, big deal, to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades, and he said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! I mean, it's almost laughable, isn't it? Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. That is just going nuts. Here's what Artemis is saying. He's saying, look, guys, people, we make our money from the worship of Artemis, which incidentally, that as a reason why people should worship Artemis is kind of crazy, right? Hey, listen, because I make my money, you should continue to worship, which is that's kind of a stretch, right? That's kind of hard to justify. You may wonder, who is Artemis? It's not Aramis, that cologne you guys were in high school. It's Artemis. Artemis was the, was the Greek goddess of fertility and of some other things. And Artemis, also known as Diana to the Romans. And they had this incredible temple, and the ruins are still there in Ephesus today, that's larger than a football field. It's a huge, huge temple. It's what Ephesus was really known for. It's like Detroit, known for automobiles. Las Vegas for gambling, South Florida for wonderful people and great beaches, right? It's, it's what they're known for. They're known for the worship of Artemis. This is who we are. This is what we're all about. And Artemis is, and Demetrius is saying, listen, guys, we're, this is a threat. Paul already moved people to burn tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of magic books. What are they going to do next? They're going to come after who? Diana, Artemis. They're going to stop our businesses. We've got to put a stop to this. This is not just happening here. It's spreading throughout the regions. And you know what? He's not totally wrong, is he? 
Because when people start following Jesus, when people start receiving the gift of salvation, when people start being filled with the Holy Spirit, something happens, right? There's a change in how people function. And there's a change in how they spend their money, hopefully. Right? God should change the way we function, the way our economy works. If we're really followers of Jesus. So Artemis is not totally wrong. He's, he's overplaying his hand, no doubt, right? He's, he's getting people emotional and he's trying to, to, to say it's all Paul's fault and we need to be worried about him. But he's not all that wrong, is he? He's trying to stir people's emotion. He's trying to get them to move against the people of the way for economic reasons, but also for reasons of identity. Don't miss this. He's saying, listen, this is what we're all about. We're all about Artemis. We're all about Diana. That's who we are. And you know what? People today are the same way. They identify as certain things. And people choose their identity often. And if you start changing someone's identity, you start attacking someone's identity, they feel like their identity is being threatened, they're going to get very, very emotional. And that's what, our, that's what Demetrius is playing on right now. And when that happens, you need to try not to get caught in the crossfire, because here's what happens in verse 29. It says, So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius, and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. So Demetrius gets everyone fired up. They start this near riot, and they grab Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's uh, traveling companions, friends of Paul's, who were just kind of probably standing around having a coffee, minding their own business. And they get swept up and hauled off to the theater. You're kind of like, why are we going to the theater? That's not where your mobs and rioters usually go. But this theater in Ephesus was a well-known place. Uh, at its completion, it, it would seat over 24,000 people. So think of the Miami Arena almost, or the Miami-Dade Arena where the Heat played. But think of it more as a theater, kind of like, I think, uh, Amphitheater or uh, the Kravitz in West Palm. But it's a, it's a place that people could really see what was going on. And um, it was cut into a 100-foot mountain, And so everyone was kind of gathered around. We don't know how many people were there, but no doubt thousands. And they're all gathered around, and they're kind of at this place where they gather. They would have some civic meetings there two or three times a year. So it was sort of a government place, but not really. It was mainly a place people could gather, and you could kind of make your case. And so Aristarchus and Gaius just kind of get swept up in the crossfire. Always need to be careful when chaos is happening, Watch out for the crossfire. But to their credit, Luke doesn't have them saying a word. They're just there. And sometimes in the chaos, you just have to survive until it's over. And that's apparently what Aristarchus and Gaius do. And so here's this big crowd, and Paul loves big crowds. And so he's thinking, I'm going to go in. But he listens to the locals. And I love this in chapter 19, verse 30. It says, But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And I'm thinking they had to physically restrain him, maybe. Uh, Paul was not one to be held back often. 
the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, which were um, people of Ephesus, very likely who had some standing in the community, perhaps even elected people, um, Asiarch, um, who were friends of his, uh, which incidentally, Paul had friends who weren't followers. I love that too. You need to always have friends who aren't following Jesus so you can help them follow Jesus. Paul had friends who weren't followers. Um, friends, they sent, they sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Paul, do not go in. They know something. It's always a good idea to know what the locals think. The people who know the culture, who know how the city functions, who know how things usually turn out. And Paul was wise to listen to people who kind of knew how this was going to go. Was this going to be a really good opportunity? Because to Paul, it's like there's 24,000 people maybe, or thousands of people, and they got great acoustics in there, and I can really get my message across. And Paul was a debater, right? In Athens, he's debating with the philosophers, the most brilliant men in the world. And they told him not go in. There's a time not to engage. There's a time to hold back. There's a time to listen to people who actually know what's going to happen and that this might not be a good opportunity to share the gospel. In verse 32, we find out why. Nothing really good comes out of chaos. Verse 32 says this, now some cried, describing this, this gathering, some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. I don't even know why I'm here. Everyone's upset. Someone over here is upset about this. Someone over here is upset about that. What in the world are we doing here? I just know we're upset. People just want to make me upset, and I'm upset. I don't even know why. That's what's happening. Verse 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! I mean, here's this guy. The Jews put him up there because I think the Jews are probably afraid that they think the Jews are of the way, right? Because a lot of the people of the way did come out of Judaism, but most Jews were not of the way. But there's still uh, kind of a... Um, kind of a minority, if you will, minority group. And so the Jews are like, hey, put Alexander up there. And poor Alexander gets up there, and he's trying to tell his story, and the crowd is basically shouting him down for two hours. I give him a lot of credit. Two hours, and people are shouting you down, and you're still standing? He must have had a lot, of, a lot of stamina. But it proves the point, doesn't it? This is not an opportunity to make your case. It's just chaos. It's just emotional, illogical chaos. And so they shout him down. After two hours, he finally gives it up. Clearly, this was not a great time to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And I, I love what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. He said, Do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Now, I know there's some dog lovers out there. And I know that some of you feed them better than you feed yourself. 
And I know that some of you carry them around in carriages better than you yourself even can walk. That's not the kind of dogs we're talking about. When they mention dogs in Scripture, it is almost always a wild dog, someone who's out of control that is eating and ravaging anything he can get his hands on. They are dangerous. They hang out in the dumps. It's a very bad situation. And pigs, of course, are unclean animals. Here's what Jesus is saying. Don't take what is so precious as the good news of Jesus and throw it before something that's going to stomp it and trample it and then come after you. There's a time you don't need to share with pigs and dogs because the pearls, the gospel that you're presenting is going to be devalued and even harmed. And you, as a deliverer of that, are going to be harmed as well. Be wise. Don't throw your pearls before swine. And that's what is happening in this uh, riot, really, in Ephesus. Paul sees that is basically everyone has turned into like wild dogs and pigs. And to throw the pearls, the preciousness of Jesus, is not going to be good for the gospel or for the way. And so finally... The city manager shows up, and you wonder, where's this guy been? Verse 35, and when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, where are you, town clerk? What are you doing letting this riot go on? I don't know if he's out on his boat, if he's playing golf, don't know where he's at, but the town clerk is probably the highest ranking official in Ephesus. He would be like the mayor. He was the liaison to the ruling government at the time, Rome. Ephesus was a free city. And the town manager was the kind of the liaison. He was supposed to keep things calm, to keep the peace, to keep there from being riots like this, because if things got out of control, Rome would put its fist down, and it would stop it, and it would make Ephesus no longer a free city and take away a lot of their freedom. So the the town clerk shows up, and he cried to the crowd, and he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the, the, from, from the sky. See, they believe the reason that they were the temple of the place of Artemis is this, this stone apparently fell from the sky. Maybe it was a meteorite. Maybe somebody just made up the story. Don't know. Um, came from Zeus, supposedly, and that's why Artemis, that's why they had the temple there. And he said, everyone knows this. It's not in doubt. The way's not going to stop that. Paul's not going to stop that. Let's, let's calm down. Let's relax. We're not in any real danger. And he says in verse 30, Seeing that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Important point. You see, we don't have Gaius and Aristarchus running down uh, Artemis. They're not running down other gods to build up their gods. Really important point to notice, verse 36. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a, compliment, have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we, are, we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. 
Like, hey, guys, listen. You don't have a case. If you do have a case, take it to court. Sue them. But don't cause this riot. You are risking our city and the freedom of our city by your bad behavior. And by the way, since Paul never got involved in that bad behavior, he never was a target of someone that they could pin this all on, which is probably what Demetrius wanted. Because he stayed out of the fray, he didn't make himself or the church look bad. It all came to nothing. The locals were correct. And Paul was wise to not cast his pearls before swine, to not enter into the chaos. So how do we deal with chaos? What's our strategy? Let me give four things from this passage that we can kind of learn as to how do we handle things when things get out of control, when things get chaotic. Number one, when no one is listening, stop talking. When no one is listening, when people stop listening, stop talking. We sometimes feel like believers, when we get a chance to talk, talk to someone about the Bible or about Jesus, we've got to start in Genesis and we've got to end in Revelation and we've got to tell everything we know in between. We've got to tell the whole story, but that's not really how Jesus functioned. It's not how Paul functioned. Give them some. Give them something. Give them something to think about. People don't listen forever. Parents of teenagers know this well. There is a point when your child has stopped listening. It's really wise to figure this out. There is something, there is a sign that goes across in their eyes. And if you watch carefully, you can see it. Um, and you, you just watch and you know you've already taught. I was, go, I was in dad mode one time with our wonderful, precious, respectful, beautiful daughter, Sarah. And I was telling her something. That we, I don't know what she ever did wrong, but something she did wrong. Uh, like didn't help with the dishes, something. And I was sharing with her why this was so important and it would ruin her life if she didn't start helping with dishes. And in dad mode, sometimes you get carried away and say more than needs to be said. But that's why you're a dad. So at some point, I saw go across her eyes, and I can actually read her mind. Yeah, it's kind of the glazed look. You got that one, Misha? You kind of go... No, you don't. You're always smiling. And Megan has that look, probably. No, at 16, she's figured it out. But there was a point where I could see that she was no longer listening. And somehow my discernment woke up and said, she's not listening. And I said, you're really just waiting me out, aren't you? And she looked at me, her sweet, beautiful face, 15 years old. She said, pretty much. You're really better off to stop talking before people quit listening, incidentally. It doesn't help just to keep going on and on and on. Leave them wanting more. Often you just answer a question. Often you're just sharing a little bit of the story of Christ just to help them walk down the road a little bit further. People stop listening. You need to stop talking. Number two. You don't really need to run down other gods to lift up the one true God. You don't really need to... Paul didn't get in there and say, man, you know what? Artemis is horrible. She's not really a god. It's not, she's terrible. Don't do this. And You don't really need to do that. You need to know the truth about other worldviews. But you don't need to run down what people are already emotionally attached to. What you need to do is lift up Jesus. 
You see, Jesus is the greatest God, the only God that there is. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the only God. He is the, it's, not even a, it's not even close. When you think of Jesus Christ, He's not like battling with other gods. He is destroying other gods. You don't have to run down other gods to lift up the greatest God. Remember when I was in sales, I learned early on, you don't go into a client, a potential customer, and run down who they're already using because they'll throw you out. They're already emotionally attached to that person. They've already made a decision to use the other company. They already like them. For you to go in and say, hey, potential customer that I would like to buy my product and allow my kids to go to college, listen, let me tell you how stupid you are. It doesn't really work well. You don't need to run down what people are doing. You just need to lift up Jesus. Let me tell you about the God, the only God, who came down to pay the price for me. When every other God, you have to work your way up to him. Let me tell you about that God. You don't have to run down other gods to lift up the one true God. Third, Avoid the chaos of accusations that are based on emotions rather than logic. Avoid those situations where people are just spewing their emotional uh, mind out and they're just continuing to go, but it doesn't make any sense. You don't need to go engage that. You don't need to go try to get into some kind of an emotional debate. It's not really going to go anywhere. Chaos doesn't usually produce anything positive. Dealing with chaos Don't try to share your pearls in the midst of the chaos. And fourth, walk like the winner that you are. Walk like the winner that you are. Stop living living like you're afraid you're going to lose. Listen, if you have received the good news of Jesus Christ, if you have received salvation, if he's paid the price for your sin, listen, you've already won. Do you know that? You've already won. I love watching FAU's victory the other night because when they won, when the clock ticked zero, when they were ahead by one point, they didn't go around asking, did we win? They didn't go around saying, oh man, we won, I think, I don't know. Maybe we won, maybe we did, I don't know, maybe I'm kind of... No, they're jumping up and down, they're excited. They won the first tournament game that the school has ever won. You have a much bigger victory. You've already defeated sin and death. Jesus Christ has saved you. Do you understand that? No amount of chaos can take away that victory. There should be a sense of incredible joy in your life. I've won. I don't have to engage every emotional conversation. I don't have to have every argument. I need to know my stuff, but I don't need to battle everybody who wants to say something bad about the Bible or Jesus Christ. I just need to lift him up. I've already won. I've already won. Sometimes I see church people wringing their hands about the state of our country and the state of the world. Listen, I love our country. I'm so grateful for this, what God has established here in America and the opportunity that we have to share Jesus with the world. It's incredible. God has ordained that. But you know what? God is in control. 
Jesus Christ has never, ever lost an election. Ever. You need to vote biblical principles. You need to choose the best flawed candidate because they're all flawed, but you need to choose the best candidate that best represents the two greatest commandments, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Who lets us do that? Who promotes that? God, you need to love others as ourselves. I want for others what I have. Who promotes that? Who stands for religious liberty? Who stands for life? Who does those kinds of the best I can tell? Who stands for the poor? Who stands for the immigrant? Who stands? It's hard, folks. But let me tell you, Jesus has never lost an election. Romans 8.28 says, For all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Now, let me tell you, if you're walking a path that doesn't love God and doesn't care about God's purpose, things don't work out for your benefit. But if you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you've received the gift of salvation, you have already won. You could, we could, your side, your candidates could lose every election. You could be arrested, mocked, beaten, martyred. And you know what? You still won. You still won because you have eternity in heaven. Jesus Christ is preparing a place for you right now that's way better than where you are today. Are you a winner? Have you won? Jesus Christ has saved you. You're absolutely a winner. You're absolutely a winner. And you say, well, Steve, I don't really feel like a winner today. Let me, there's only really a couple reasons why you shouldn't feel like a winner. One is that you're not. You've never really received Jesus Christ. You've never said yes to him. You've never repented of your sin and let the Spirit permeate your life and live through you. Or maybe you forgot about the victory of Jesus. Maybe the chaos of this world has caused you to forget that you have this incredible victory in your life. I want to remind you, you receive Jesus, you are a winner. And you have the opportunity to help other people win as well. No, you can't make people win, can you? Every coach will tell you that you cannot make players want to win. That has to come from within. But you can certainly help guide people who want to be a winner as well and want to receive that gift of salvation. See, that's the joy we have as followers of Jesus. We get to help people take those steps and walk that way to respond to the invitation of Jesus Christ. If that's you today and you say, Steve, I, I don't know that I'm really a winner and I want to be, I would love to talk to you after the service. I'd love to just spend some time. We're not going to rush you. We're not going to force you. We're not going to try to sell you. We're just going to help you respond to what Jesus has already done. And if you forgot about that victory today, I want to urge you. I want you to rest in the victory of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that can take away the victory that you receive as a follower of Jesus. Would you bow with me? Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to support this ministry, go to our website at fbcdelray.com. Also, click the share button so you can share this message with a friend or someone in need as we seek to know Jesus, to know others, and to make him known.
We cry out, we cry out.